This is an ABC podcast. The history of scientific research is littered with examples of unethical experiments. The most infamous of these are pretty well known, like the horrific medical procedures Nazi doctors carried out on prisoners during the Holocaust, or the Stanford Prison Experiment, where participants had to act as inmates or guards in a mock prison, which they did to a terrifying degree. Both those examples led to ethical standards being introduced in their respective fields of medicine and psychology. But we're going to take a closer look at the field of psychology over the next couple of episodes, with a focus on some lesser-known studies. I first heard about the monster study when researching a book on stuttering I wrote. If you look at Harlow as an example, the worst of those experiments were a device which he called the pit of despair. It's a, a pretty horrifying attempt to prove a scientific theory. And there they produced some really psychotic monkeys, some of whom could never be fixed. This is All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. We're going to find out how we arrived at the ethics standards we have today and what it costs to get here. In the case of the monster study, it has no validity, no use, and should never have happened. These studies rewrote some of the fundamental principles of how psychologists work with abused children, right? Mm. I mean, they were really important. They were really awful yeah. and really important. And, I, you know, I'll say to people, Harry Harlow takes you right to the line and says, what are you willing to pay for knowledge? First up, the monster study. I became interested in the, the history of speech therapy because I had a very bad stutter as, as a kid and, and one that has lingered through in a, a less obvious way to adult life. This is John T. Claypole. He's a writer and documentary producer, and he first learned of what's been dubbed the monster study when he was researching his book on stuttering called Words Fail Us. And I came across it referred to on a number of occasions rather obliquely without much detail. So you've got this very compelling label, the monster study, yeah. and not a great deal of information about it. John T. started digging, and what he found deeply disturbed him. There are two main players in the story, Wendell Johnson and Mary Tudor. Let's start with Wendell. A very, very important figure in speech therapy. Wendell Johnson, along with Charles Van Riper, is the speech therapist who's most important in our understanding of stuttering today. As a kid, Wendell Johnson himself had a really bad stutter. And as he becomes an adult to, to try and understand it and try and make his peace with it, he starts to study semantics uh, and language. He very quickly comes to a theory that a stutter isn't something necessarily that's wrong with a child's speech. It's, it's a, a habit of speech, generally a temporary habit of speech, that is then fixated upon by nervous adults, uh, particularly parents, and the child develops a self-consciousness about it and the problem gets worse and worse and worse. Wendell had a pithy line that encapsulated his theory. Which is, a stutter develops in, in an adult's ear, not in a child's mouth. And this idea was largely based on his own experiences, where the more his parents obsessed about his stutter as a kid, the worse it got. But he needed to test this theory. So in the 1930s, he begins searching for a group of children to experiment with. He needs some who already have a stutter and some who don't. 
And the experiment was to find out whether a, a child could be induced to stutter purely by being labelled a stutterer, told that they had a stutter and made to feel shame about it, and at the same time whether a child could be cured of a stutter simply by being told that they didn't have a stutter and their speech was absolutely fine. That's the experiment. It sounds relatively benign, mm. but the devil is in the detail of <laughs> how they did it. Now, where are you going to find a large group of children who don't have parents looking after them to make sure their children aren't subject mm -hmm. uh, of a scientific experiment? And so very quickly, Wendell Johnson looks to the state orphanage down the road. And Wendell Johnson says, this is perfect. There's 500 children in this orphanage. Statistically, five of them at least are going to stutter because 1% of all people stutter. So we're going to have some kids who stutter. We're going to have a lot who don't. They don't have parents to get in the way and tell us what we can and can't do. Hmm. So we can put my whole theory to the test there. And the orphanage didn't have any objections? Did they know what they were going to do to the children? Um, yeah, the um, the authorities of, of, of the orphanage, which is ultimately the state itself, know what's happening. Mm -hmm. In terms of the individual carers and the teachers there, they don't. They are told by Wendell Johnson's team that they are speech therapists, they've come to do um, trials and work around speech therapy, and they need to help them in the work they're doing. They do not realise that a whole bunch of kids who don't have speech problems are going to be told that they do. This orphanage also had an ongoing relationship with the University of Iowa, where Wendell was based, and had been used for experiments before. So the request to conduct a study there wasn't an outlandish one. Anyways, the person who would actually be running the study wasn't going to be Wendell Johnson. It would be his graduate student, a 23-year-old named Mary Tudor. And he uh, says, look, I've got a theory. I want to test it. <laughs> There's an orphanage. You're good with kids. I've, I've, I've noticed that you're good with kids, so I want you to lead this study. OK, so walk me through what she actually does when, once the study starts. OK, so, so they take 22 children in total, 10 of whom have previous experience of stuttering, and then they choose almost randomly another group of children who are fluent speakers. What they then do is split the children into two groups. So in the first group, which is half the children, those children are told that their speech is absolutely fine. They speak fluently. They have nothing to worry about. Half of those children actually have stutters because Wendell Johnson and Mary Tudor want to find out if just by telling a child who has a stutter that they don't stutter, their speech will improve. The other group, once again consisting of half children who, who stutter, half children who are fluent speakers, they are told that they all have stutters and this is a terrible, terrible problem and that they need to do something about it because otherwise they're going to become very bad stutterers. It's going to impact their lives terribly. She even writes down a script so, so we even know exactly what it is she says to the children. So it's not... It's not hyperbole that we speculate now, but her, her script, as she writes it down, is, you have a great deal of trouble with your speech. The type of interruptions which you have are very undesirable. In fact, you are beginning to stutter. You must try to stop yourself immediately. Use your willpower. It's absolutely necessary that you do this. Mm. Do anything to keep from chattering. Don't ever speak unless you can do it right. Wow. That's word for word what she says to these kids. I mean, that's that's kind of scary to hear just hearing it, right? Like, I can't imagine being a child being told, don't ever speak until you do it correctly. 
Yeah, and the children, some of them are very young. They they range from between 5 to 15 mm. years old. So some of them are very young. They don't have parents who yeah. are in their lives. They're in a very cruel environment, which is a 1930s state orphanage. So they're kids who need a bit of love and care, and that's not what they're getting in mm. this experiment. So what does this message do to them? So over five months, Mary Tudor goes every couple of weeks and spends time with each child to see how their progress is doing. And in that time, she reinforces the message she's giving each one. Uh, what happens is that for the, the children who stutter, who are told that they have fluent speech, their speech improves a little bit. They relax into it, they stutter a bit still, but they become more fluent. So this is thumbs up for Wendell Johnson in that way. He and Mary Tudor have taken some children who have a stutter and then smothered them with praise and reassurance. What's going on with the group that did stutter and were told, your speech is terrible? Interestingly, for the kids who uh, do stutter and are told their speech is terrible but are still given speech therapy... On the whole, their speech improves a little bit, which okay. is quite interesting. They still get some benefit from from therapy, and I suppose the stigma they've already acquired around stuttering is, isn't significantly reinforced by having a speech therapist say, you have a stutter, this is going to cause you problems, because they know it does. So both groups of stutterers turn out fine. Where the biggest problems emerge is with the group who didn't have a stutter, but were told they did. What happens for the children who don't have stutters at all, but who are told that they do and it's very bad, is their speech starts to deteriorate. They become increasingly shy, they start to exhibit behavioural problems, they start to fall out with friends, they become very self-conscious. How quickly does she see these behavioural changes? It happens almost immediately. So to take a particular particular case study, I think we should start to talk about names and children, shouldn't yeah. we? So there's a child who's referred to as case number 11. Number 11 is a five-year-old girl who 60 years later is revealed to be, uh, to be called Norma Jean Pugh. So I think we'll call her Norma rather than number 11. Mm. Norma, in January 1939, has been assessed and is a very normal speaker. That's in in week one. And Mary Tudor sits down with her and says, I want you to tell me a story. And the girl says, I'll tell you the story of the three bears and tells the story of the three bears. And when she speaks, because she's five, she repeats the old word. She says of Goldilocks, she, she, she. And at that point, Mary Tudor says, stop, you're stuttering. Mm. What you're doing is stuttering. This is very, very bad. And she does this while the girl continues to tell this story. So that's in January. In February, a couple of weeks later, when Mary Tudor goes back, she now finds it's very hard to get Norma to speak at all. And when Mary Tudor says, why don't you want to speak? Uh, Norma won't answer. And Mary Tudor says, are you afraid of something? And Norma says, yes, I am. Afraid I might stutter. And in the time that Mary Tudor's been away, Norma's teacher has reinforced Mary Tudor's message by calling her out in class and things and saying, mm. don't don't stutter. Um, so it's just within a few weeks, almost immediately, Norma's gone from being a child with very normal speech patterns to a child who's very reluctant to speak at all. A few weeks later, again in March, Mary Tudor says, I want you to tell me uh, another story. And Norma won't begin. So Mary says, no, you have to tell me a story. 
And so Norma begins to tell the story of Peter Rabbit, but she can no longer speak in normal sentences. She's breaking her speech into very, very short nuggets of words. And and again, Mary Tudor says, what's wrong? Why aren't you speaking much? Why are you speaking in these weird mm. short nuggets? And, and, and Norma says, I'm afraid I might stutter. By the end, by uh, April, it's only a couple of months, she's gone from having been described as a, as a normal speaker by the assessors uh, as to somebody very, very unwilling to talk. What do you make of that story, you know, when you hear that, you know, how withdrawn that little girl became? Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And um, I I know what it's like to be a child who, who stutters and a child who stutters badly and feels very self-conscious about their speech. I know what it's like not to want to open your mouth in, in, mm. in the classroom for fear of being laughed at. So, I find it I, I find it heartbreaking, and I I find it heartbreaking because she's an entirely defenceless five year old girl who has uh, no parents, is in a very unhospitable envi- in environment, and of all the problems she's got in her life, actually stuttering is not one of them. But yeah. she's being told she does, and the thing that I, I that always makes me choke in the. Um, in in the report, in Mary Tudor's report, are these human glimpses that come through. So the report is full of data. You know how many uh, interruptions a child makes per minute in their speech, particular things they say that illustrate a point. But in, in the case of Norma, the only way to draw her out is to get her to tell stories. And so you, you get these accounts of she begins telling the story of the three bears and the idea of this five-year-old girl wanting to tell the story of the three bears but not being able to or being stopped every time she opens her mouth and told to stutter, mm. I find heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, but hearing this honestly makes me want to cry and to just give Norma a hug. We don't know what happened to Norma later in life, how that experience impacted her in adulthood. But we do know what happened to another girl called Mary Corlask. So Mary Corlask was part of that same group. She was a fluent speaking child who's told they have a stutter. Mary was a bit older. She was 12. Uh, her, her, her treatment starts in January 1939, where she's told she has this terrible problem. And a very similar thing happens. She she becomes very reticent to speak. She, she falls out with her best friend. She becomes so self-conscious about her speech that she, she stops talking to her, her best friend. So she becomes a very isolated figure. And, uh, uh, and and afterwards, she becomes a delinquent. She she runs away from the orphanage two years later mm. and ends up in quite a rough school for orphans. We know more about her because she emerges 60 years later. And what happens with the monster study is that after it's finished and Mary Tudor's dissertation is written up, it just gets put on a shelf in the University of Iowa Library. It's, it's, it's known about that it exists, but there's understandably, uh, within Wendell Johnson's department, and more widely in the university, a sense of embarrassment about it. There's a realisation quite quickly that it probably shouldn't have happened and that mm. it was ethically 
very compromised. And and it was during that time that it acquired this legendary status and was referred to obliquely as the monster study, although very few people had access to it or could see it. But what happens is in the early noughties, about 20 years ago, is a journalist who's seen references to it picks it up um, and, and and starts to find out what happens. He, 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 he goes to the University of Iowa Library, where it is there on the shelves, on the stacks, it can be read, and he starts to hunt down the children who participated in it. One of the people he comes across is Mary Corlask, who, who, who was 12 at the time, and, and she tells her story. And she was sent to the orphanage when she was seven. Her mother was alive, but her family had lost everything in the Great Depression, so they couldn't afford to feed her. And one day her mother handed her to a, to a man in a car who was from the orphanage and said, don't, don't worry, you'll be okay. And she, she was taken off and never saw her mum again at, at that time. When she was told uh, in January 1939 she's going to um, into a classroom to meet a, an outside woman called Mary Tudor, she was very, very excited. She thought this was going to be her new mum, that somebody was adopting her. Wow. <laughs> so um, she she goes into this classroom full of hope and meets Mary Tudor, who, who begins to conduct this a psychological experiment on her and tells her she has a problem in, in uh, with her speech. She... Uh, after, at the moment she's approached in the early noughties, she's never known it was all a hoax, essentially. Really? Because they never did a mop-up job afterwards. Wow. The, the University of Iowa, Wendell Johnson's department, and Mary Tudor never went and told the kids that, you know, ha, 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 it was all a... It mm. was an all, blah, blah. And I can understand to some extent why they wouldn't do that, because they would be admitting to insupportable practice. So so Mary Corlask finds out that this landmark event in her life, which destroyed her confidence, caused her to fall out with her friends and ultimately run away, was all just a hoax, a scientific experiment. Uh, and, and, and what we do know is that she, she writes to Mary Tudor. By this point, Mary Tudor was in her 80s, Mary Corlask in her 70s. But the letter that she writes was addressed to Mary Tudor, the monster. And inside the letter says, you destroyed my life. I could have been a scientist, archaeologist, mm. or even president. Instead, I became a pitiful stutterer. The kids made fun of me. My grades fell off. I felt stupid, clear into my, adult, uh, clear into my adulthood. I still want to avoid people t- to this day. For all the damage done by Wendell Johnson's study, he also disproved his own theory that a stutter begins in an adult's ear, or that it's caused by anxious parents obsessing over natural and temporary quirks of speech. Because the children who didn't stutter in the study, but were told they did, didn't go on to develop stutters, despite what Mary Callask wrote. They developed psychological issues, self-consciousness, and hesitations in their speech, but not stuttering, Jaunty says. The assessors, speech therapists, all the assessors said that those children were not stutterers at the end. So it it didn't actually prove Wendell Johnson's theory at all. Hmm. It simply proved something which was fairly evident and obvious anyway, which is if you take vulnerable children and tell them they're terrible, they're going to wind up feeling pretty and insecure. So that's about it. That's about as much as it proved. Was there any 
criticism or pushback on the study at the time? Was there any ethical oversight? And, and was there any criticism that came in the years afterwards? It's only anecdotal, but but one of Wendell Johnson's students in the in the 60s, who, who then became an eminent speech therapist, when he wrote about it, he said when he was studying under Wendell Johnson, it, 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 it was talked about by the faculty, but it, it had been agreed not to do anything with it or publish for it. The reason why this student of Wendell Johnson believed that was the case was that because pretty soon after 1939, we know what happens, which is that the West starts hearing about trials on human beings taking place in Nazi concentration camps. And there's something about the monster study Mm. that feels alarmingly similar to the way some of those... (laughs) experiments uh, are conducted. So, so uh, once again, this is only anecdotal, but th- this student of Wendell Johnson believes that the, the monster study is just quietly hushed up by his department in order to protect the great Wendell himself. And do we know if Wendell or Mary ever came to regret doing the study or, or feel, you know, it was wrong to have done? Wendell Johnson didn't. He died. Uh, he died relatively young. And uh, anyway, I should say as well, he's he, he's a very very sig- significant and humane figure in in the history of speech therapy more generally. He he's not a villain. He's um, he has a very benign impact on generations of children who stutter. There's just this period at the start of his career where he needs to prove something to himself. And, and and does a bad thing. Mary Tudor does live long enough. She is alive when the, the monster study is made public in the early noughties, and she's confronted by it by the journalist. She receives that package from Mary Corlask saying, you destroyed my life. Mm-hmm. She She's very conflicted about it. Yes, she feels terrible about it. She tries to rationalise it. So when in, interviewed about it, she says... Look, at the end of the day, it was a small price to pay for science. Hmm. Look at the countless number of children it helped. Um, So she takes a utilitarian argument, but utilitarian arguments are never good ones to be, um, to sort of stand behind. Did it help any children, though? Um, In the sense that Wendell Johnson did. And Wendell Johnson had a very positive impact on the... I mean, just to pull out and give some broader context... um, you know, in the 1930s, speech therapy and stuttering have been sort of uh, sabotaged by psychoanalysis. And the psychoanalysts pull speech therapy and our understanding of stuttering back into... It's not back, they just put it into a very, very dark place. And their theory of stuttering is that stuttering is all a symptom of neurosis. There's nothing physiological or neurological to it all. According to Freud and his disciples, Mm. stuttering is purely neurotic in origin. Mm. And they write these very um, unpleasant, unseemly accounts of the... uh, stuttering being similar to the action of the anal sphincter as it sort of clenches on feces. Stutterers are therefore mostly repressed homosexuals. Uh, And uh, uh, speech therapy goes to a very, very bad place. And that psychoanalytic model of speech, um, of stuttering, lasts right through the 20th century and is responsible for a lot of the stigma around stuttering that was still evident when I was a child. A figure like Wendell Johnson is a saviour, in in a sense, because he is somebody who has personal experience of stuttering, knows it's got nothing to do with 
repressed sphincter functions mm. and neuroses and just takes a very humane attitude to it and st starts to develop quite simple techniques for helping children speak more fluently. So he... he he takes on the psychoanalysts and, uh, you know, when I was a kid, the speech therapy I was doing was School of Wendell Johnson still. Right. So he, he did help countless children. He, he helped me. But he, at a certain point, he needed to, he felt he had to have concrete proof for his theory. And, uh, and that's what the monster study was designed to do. Wendell Johnson went on to develop pioneering treatments that would help children improve their speech without shaming them. Essentially, the job of, of a speech therapist is to help a child build confidence and give them a few practical tips for managing their stutter. So some of that is what's called speech modification therapy, where if you have a, ba a bad stutter, you're essentially taught to rebuild your speech from scratch. Mm -hmm. You slow your words right down. You develop techniques for entering words more softly. And he also developed a, a technique which is a very, very important one today and really at the heart of, of modern speech therapy practice, which is called voluntary stuttering, which is where you, as a person who stutters, you go and perform exercises in public where you uh, address strangers, make phone calls, and you voluntarily stutter. You, you effectively fake a stutter. Uh, and you start to build a kind of control around how you stutter. And it's it's a form of exposure therapy, and it's very, very effective. And, yeah, it, it's, it's at the absolute heart of speech therapy practice today. So clearly, Wendell Johnson's legacy is a complex one. There's good and bad all mixed up in there. He was also working at a time when ethics standards weren't what they are today. His study was hardly an outlier. But we can still judge the monster study while understanding its context. And not only was it harmful at the time, it was ultimately useless. Very few of uh, psychological trials and experiments conducted in, in the 1920s, 30s or 40s are conducted in a way that we would do them today. There's rarely enough case studies or data. I mean, the Monster Study has 22 children, that's all. It's not a big enough segment to come to any firm, firm conclusions. They're also riddled with prejudice and preconceptions at the start that I think make them very difficult to to have too much trust in. So, for instance, in the monster study, there's a, a, a fundamental disrespect for the subjects, the children. They're measuring their IQ, but they're measuring their IQ, I mean, IQ, which is a very overrated form of intelligence assessment anyway, but in the 1930s was even more primitive. And lo and behold, it turns out that IQ prejudices privileged, well-educated children. Mm. So, so most of the children in the orphanage and almost all of the children in the monster study have low IQ by a 1930s IQ assessment. So they are perceived to be of a sort of low calibre. So it's, it's, it, it's, 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 it's very hard to say we took 22 children, 22 children who are treated very badly and exist in a uh, the sort of institution that doesn't exist nowadays and to say that's a study that has any use for, for today. So 
I, I think you have to look at each trial and experiment on a case-by-case basis about whether what they find has any validity or, or use today. But I would certainly say in the case of the monster study, it has no validity, no use, and should never have happened. That's Jaunty Claypole, author of Words Fail Us, in defense of disfluency. Thanks to producer Jennifer Leake and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. Next week, we take a look at a series of studies that changed how we view the role of touch and affection in parenting, with methods that started off pretty harmless, but ended in deeply unethical territory. But I don't paint Harry Harlow as an out-and-out villain. What made him both a great scientist and, uh, in the end, a very poor ethicist is he was fearless about finding and, and trying to understand the questions he thought were important. That's on our next episode. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.